Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's try that again. Good morning, everybody. There we go. Good morning. So glad that you're here this morning. want to say good morning to our community meeting in the north at 10 o'clock. We're so glad that you're with us today. If you've got your Bible this morning again, would you turn back to the book, a little book of First Peter? That's where we are once again. We live in a world uh, that no other human being has ever lived in before. That is that we live in a world where we have instantaneous access to information in a way that has never been experienced in 10,000 years of recorded history. 200 years ago, 100 years ago, they could have not imagined what is normative for us. I was watching uh, President Obama's last State of the Union address, and it was so interesting watching as he was preparing to do that sort of significant thing in that country in that moment, how something was happening across the world in Iran, and people were on social media, and it could have a direct impact about what he was about to do. Like, we live in a world where we expect information and access information, whether right or wrong, immediately. 200 years ago, it wasn't like that at all. 200 years ago last June, a very significant thing was taking place that some of us have heard about, but most of us never think about. All of Europe was on edge once again. Fear and anxiety and panic was sweeping the whole continent. Sort of that feeling that you can't sleep because if you go to sleep, you wonder if you're going to wake up and everything that you love is going to be destroyed. Napoleon had come back. Napoleon had risen from the ashes and Europe was being threatened again, war, famine, destruction, etc. And now he was coming back and a battle was about to take place that would be the deciding factor for not only hundreds of thousands, but millions and whole nations. And what would happen? What would happen in that little place called Waterloo? Here's how one historian relays what took place at the very end of that battle, which most of us have never heard about. He says, when the battle ended, news was carried first by ship that sailed across from Europe, across the English Channel to the English southern coast. Can you imagine living in a world like that? And the news then was relayed by the coast, by signal flags, all the way to London. So I want you to imagine this. There are men with flags every kilometer signaling each other to tell each other what's taken place. The report was finally received in London, and it was actually declared from Winchester Cathedral. And there was flags placed on top of the church that began to spell out what had taken place. And they began to spell out that Wellington had defeated Napoleon, and the whole city, if you can imagine, could look up at this cathedral and by flag see what had taken place. Like, can you imagine living in a world like that? And this is what took place. Wellington defeated, dot, dot, dot. And as these young men were up on top of the cathedral and putting out the declaration that Napoleon had been defeated, a fog came into London and actually hid the rest of the message. And so the whole of London, based on the incomplete information, read the flags that said Wellington had been defeated, the citizens of London thought Napoleon had won, and gloom filled the nation as bad news began to spread from that cathedral right across the English countryside. They thought they had lost. But then suddenly, when the fog left, they were able to read the complete news, which actually spelled out, Wellington defeated the enemy. The English fears had been completely unfounded. 
Joy immediately, of course, replaced gloom. Historians tell us that dance parties broke out across all of England in the streets, and I'm sure there was some drinking too, because one of the great enemies of that country had been overcome. And then this pastor wrote these little words. In like manner, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus gives us certain hope that our victory is secure also. But the point of the story is this. We actually need the whole story. You need to see the end to live through the middle. You actually have to be reminded and reminded and reminded. We together, living in this society, continually need reminding of what the whole truth is. Because if we choose not to be reminded of the truth and live in the middle through the lens of the end, we will end up continually walking around in fog. Our joy will be stolen and we will live in gloom and we will act like we are defeated even though we are not. See, that is why Peter has spent so much time doing what he has been doing. Writing to a small group of churches that are now under formal persecution by the Roman Empire. And Peter, in a painstaking way, has walked his community, and we also today, through what our living hope is, and what it looks like, and how it affects our whole life, especially when we are possibly under attack, or we are under attack for suffering for our faith. And he said these words in 1 Peter 1.3. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. He said, you must live your Christian life looking at the top of the cathedral and being reminded that the enemy has been defeated. If you take your eyes and look down, you will discover fog and your spiritual life will be choked out. Right after he declared this, as we've walked through this book, we've seen this. Peter then outlines over 20 different truths that God has done in us and over us, how he sees us, how he loves us, and how he's changed us. He said that God burst all the barriers, ethnic, gender, social, economic, religious, and said, this is who you now are, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. I have formed this new community that is rallying around the Lord Jesus Christ, who's giving each one of us eternal life and living hope. And right, as we've heard, living hope is the eternal spirit that gives human beings dignity, destiny, and determination to keep going even when we suffer. And then Peter said, and oh, by the way, it's critical that you understand that when suffering comes and when persecution gets real, you may not hide, you may not retreat to some fortress or some cave or some monastery. Living hope, if it is real, must actually spill out everywhere you go, where you live, where you work, where you sleep, where you play. He said there is no hiding for faithful Christians, even in a hostile culture. 1 Peter 2.12, So you live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
And then as we walked through this, we saw he began to unpack what these looked like, and he chose a group of very difficult situations to address as their pastor. He said, well, how do you deal with the government when maybe the government's against you? He said, you'd be the best citizen your government has ever seen. How, if you're a slave and you're being mistreated by your master, what do you do? You'd be the best employee your boss has ever seen. And then he turned around and said, if you're a boss and you're a Christian, you'd be the most gentle and most kind and best amazing boss your employees have ever seen. And then he said, wives, you win over your non-believing husbands by your behavior. And husbands, you be loving and kind to your wives no matter what power you have and no matter what society says you can get away with. He says, be like Christ no matter who you are if you're a Christian and live your life through that very difficult word called submission. Do everything for Jesus. Imitate Jesus because Jesus submitted and he won all things. And so now in chapter 3, that's where we are. You can turn there. He says, now I want all of us to get on with what I've been talking about. And so he moves back to the whole church, speaking to anyone who claims to be a Christian, and he says this, so even during times of suffering and persecution, this is what the local church must be like. Verse 8, finally, now I've said all that stuff, who you are, living hope, the 20 things, what you do in these difficult situations, finally, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and be humble. Now, I love what John Stott, that great Anglican thinker, once wrote. The problem, he wrote, is we experience sort of the ideal versus reality, and we live in the tension between the two. He says the ideal of the church is beautiful. The church is chosen, the beloved people of God, his own special treasure, the covenant community to whom he has committed himself forever. We're all engaged in continuous worship of God and compassionate outreach to the world, a haven of love and peace. We're a pilgrim people headed for the eternal city. But he says, in reality, we who claim to be the church are actually often a motley rabble of people, as a rather scuffy or scruffy individuals, half-educated, half-unsaved, inspired in their worship, constantly bickering with one another, concerned for maintenance over mission, struggling and stumbling along the road, needing constant rebuke and exhortation through the Old and New Testament. And Peter comes along and says, very simply, look, all of you. All of you. Now think about this. You who are slaves, and you who are masters, and you who are Roman citizens, and you who are not Roman citizens, and you who are single, and you who are married, and you who are men, and you who are women, and you Jews and you non-Jews, and the really wealthy among you, and the really poor among you, and the middle class, none of you used to hang out. Actually, you were taught societally you were all supposed to be against each other, but now God has formed you into a new family through the resurrection of Jesus. You're this new community, and now here's what you must be together. And it is absolutely crazy, but here's what our God says all of you be like minded together. We all serve the same Jesus. We all have the same message. We are called to be like-minded. There's a level foot at the cross. We share the same Lord. And he says our unity is working out and survives only by the Holy Spirit. He's the one that gives us the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that's how we get along with one another. And Peter says at this critical moment as he's writing this letter, look, you cannot afford a family spat right now. 
You actually can't afford a civil war inside the church because you're actually under attack for your faith. And as the pressure gets worse and worse from the outside, do not turn on each other. Do not bring up old wounds or old barriers. Don't go back to what you were because when the pressure gets unbelievably difficult, we tend to turn on those we love the most. Don't do it. He says, be like-minded. It was the famous preacher Ironside that said so long ago, it is very evident that Christians will never see eye to eye on all points. Anyone want to say amen? Yeah. We are largely influenced as humans by our habits, environment, education, the measure of our intellect, our spiritual experiences which we've obtained. And it is an impossibility, he wrote so long ago, to find any number of people who look at everything from the same standpoint. So how then can we be like-minded and of one mind? Well, Paul put it in another place, in another way. He says, I have the mind of Christ. And he says, well, what is the mind of Christ? And he says, it is a humble mind. And if we are all of this mind, then we would walk together in love, consider one another, and seek to be helpers of one another. See, unity is not uniformity, but it is unity. Never forget what we truly unify around as a church. We unify around one Lord and one faith and one baptism, and we unify under the Word of God, and we unify under all these things that bind us together. And he says, because that is true, be sympathetic with one another, be understanding with each other, be concerned and kind and sensitive with one another, be present with each other, be unified, be emotionally involved, notice each other's spiritual conditions, and when good things or terrible things happen... Pray with each other, read scripture over each other, read scripture to each other. It's actually what Paul said in Romans twelve fifteen. So rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful what to do, what is right in the eyes of everyone. Peter says, because you have living hope and your identity is now rooted in everything that God has done, and as you are submitting and learning that submission is where the place of joy is, he says, just begin to ask Christ to make you like this, sympathetic and compassionate and love one another. But then Peter ends that little description by using a word thrown around in church all the time, but incredibly difficult. Be humble. Just be humble. I read this years ago, and I brought it up a few months ago, but I found this on the internet, and I love it. It's a great summary of history. It says, Greece says, be wise and know yourself. Rome says, be strong and discipline yourself. Religion continually says, be good and conform yourself. Epicureanism once said, be sensuous, satisfy yourself. Education says, be resourceful and expand yourself. Psychology says, be confident, assert yourself. Materialism says, be possessive, please yourself. Aestheticism says, be lowly, suppress yourself. Humanism says, be capable, believe in yourself. Pride says, be superior, promote yourself. Oh, and Jesus comes along and says, will just be unselfish and humble yourself. This is why Jesus and our movement is so countercultural. It violates every single significant philosophic, religious, and political worldview. And Peter comes along when things are actually not good, are not exciting, but are actually bad and dangerous, and he says, this is what the church must look like even under attack, because love is real, and living hope is real, and the flags on top of the cathedral are clear. You want your faith to survive? 
When it's good, let alone under attack, then church community, large and small, is vital and critical for your survival. And notice, let me just do a side note. You cannot do what Peter just said without people. You cannot do this without relationship. You can't be like-minded, sympathetic, love, compassionate, and humble without other Christians in the room. You can be this to yourself. It's called self-deception. But you can try doing this to yourself. But he is saying you actually have to be in relationship with people to experience what he's commanding. But then in this moment, the whole tone of this little letter changes. It actually goes from like melody and crescendo to like a minor key. Peter looks at these churches and addresses the real question that was actually sitting at the back of their mind as the storm was brewing and the threat was coming and it was about to get out of control. It is actually a question, everyone pay attention please, this is actually a question many of us in Canada as Christians for the first time, for real, are starting to really ask and wonder about. Wonder, wonder if I am good and I'm actually kind, and I'm loving, and I'm thoughtful, and I'm socially involved, and I'm even submissive, and it doesn't matter. Wonder if being nice, and Christian, and Canadian just doesn't work anymore. What happens when it actually comes home, and I am insulted, or attacked, or my standard of living, or even my life, is threatened because I am a Christian and I hold a biblical worldview. What do I do then? What do I do when it actually begins to not sort of cost me, it begins to cost me? And Peter responds and he says these words, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, Repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you will inherit a blessing. There it is again. This is so significant and actually this is a moment in time for many of us here. It's significant. He says that you were called as a Christian. We were called to suffer for Jesus. See, Peter already said this back in chapter 2, verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ has suffered for you, leaving you an example of how you should follow in his steps. See, we were not just elected and predestined and summoned into salvation and an amazing personal relationship with God and eternal life and joy and hope and forgiveness. He also says we are also called into a life that emulates Jesus' footsteps, which includes his passion and his suffering. See, since Jesus suffered for us... And loved us while we did not love him. And since Jesus came for us when we were not looking for him. And we were actually his enemy. And he took his, our place so we could have eternal life. So now we have met him. We must emulate this too. Peter says follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Suffering. Hear this please. Suffering is part of the average Christian life. And Jesus' suffering is the example of what we are all called into. And as we suffer, Peter says, unjustly, we bless. And how do we bless our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our enemies? We forgive. Never forget that Peter was there the day that P Peter was there the day that Jesus, for the first time, ever said the Sermon on the Mount. He was right beside Christ. Peter is now an old man, but as he is preaching this, he is recalling this. Hear what, again, Jesus said to his coming movement, to all of us, 
Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for obeying the scriptures, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. That's not usually when you break out the champagne. Jesus says, this is when you have your party. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who are before you. This is the way we bless the world. We willingly do not repay evil with evil. We do not get involved in vengeance. And we forgive those who hurt us the most. We rejoice when we are called backward. We rejoice when we are accused of hate that we do not have. We rejoice when we are, when we are misunderstood, misquoted. We are slandered online when we are hit, jailed, or even murdered. Great is your reward in heaven. Blessed are you, church, when you suffer for your master, Jesus. Then Peter does something very brilliant. He scans across the whole Old Testament and lands in the Psalms, and he chooses to quote from Psalm 34. He chose a real-life situation where someone was suffering for being obedient to God and was submissive to an evil king at the same time. The psalm, Psalm 34, which he's about to quote, was written by David when he was being hunted by Saul and though he was innocent. Remember, David, anointed by uh, Samuel to be king, and yet Saul was still king. Sam, Saul goes sideways. He tries to murder David. David will not touch the Lord's anointed. And what does David sing and pen when he's in a catch-22 that is completely unjust? He's submissive to God. God has promised something. And yet someone is persecuting him. This is what he writes. Whoever loves life and sees good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They they must turn from evil and they must do good. They must seek peace and they must pursue it. For the eyes, this is critical, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. David says, though I am in the right, and I have done nothing to deserve this other than God's move in my life, I declare that God is watching, and God knows the truth, and God does not lie, and God will ultimately make all things right. I will be vindicated. I will keep my mouth from evil, and I will not repay evil with evil. David gave himself to God, gave his timing to God, he worshiped God, and he did not compromise. David was suffering only for knowing God, obeying God, and walking with God. He was unjustly persecuted. And then Peter says, that is your example. Now Peter steps back and says, now I just want to give you some wisdom. As things get worse, let me just give you some thoughts. Number one, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? If you're good, most of the times you won't suffer. If you're good at your job and you're kind and you're socially involved and you're a good citizen, things are going to go well for you. Oh, by the way, he says, but you don't get credit if you do something wrong. If you're stealing or lying or cheating or sexually using someone online or you're a jerk or lazy or you're cutting corners, you're going to get in trouble and God will not honor you for this. Sinning and doing evil has no value at all. As a general rule, though, Peter says, if you're good and you're honorable and if you do your job, then fine. Things will go well with you and you will not be harmed. But then Peter says, but let's talk about the massive elephant in the room. Let's talk about the insidious side, the dark side. Let's talk about the fear that is actually sitting in many of us even here today. 
This isn't fatalism, but this is honesty. What if people just hate you? Wonder if people just start attacking you. They take your job, or they put you in jail, or they mock you just because you're a Christian and you have a Christian worldview. Wonder if you've done everything that God's commanded you to do. You've done it at home, you're doing it at work, you're doing it with the government, and they just don't care. Then what do you do? And actually, what's really going to strike a chord in our church here in the north, the second service, later time, this is it. Is the suffering worth it? See, so many of us, especially here in Canada as Christians, think that this phony war that exists is going to last. I'm over here, and we're in our community, and as long as we don't deal with them, whoever them are, good luck, they, and they don't bother us, and and we don't bother them, we'll all just get along, and everything's going to be fine. But what happens when the phony thing falls apart? Then what begins to take place in churches? And Peter says this, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats and do not get frightened. See, he acknowledges that actually no suffering is going to come and it's unjust. Now, every one of us who are Christian in this room, if you are one, has had a moment where you've had to decide whether you are going to publicly obey Christ or you're going to give in. Let me give you a somewhat humorous example that was not humorous when it took place. I was in junior high. Do you all remember junior high? How exciting was junior high for you? Oh, yeah. Awkward, voice changing, hair in places, all that good. So, growing up, and you can tell like I'm the most athletic person on earth, right? Look at the specimen that I am. You can just see how profound a sports person I was. And so we were in gym class, my favorite class, as you can imagine, and uh, we were doing floor hockey, fine. And uh, it was going back and forth, and the game was tied. True story, not exaggerated for effect at all, truly. So back and forth, and of course, we were tied. The period was coming to an end, and the teacher said, well, it's tied, so it's going to go to a shootout. So we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Everyone went through, and it came to me. And I was the last person on our team. They had done everything they could, and if I scored the goal, we were going to win. The whole team is looking at me. This is junior high. You know the pressure, right? A guy came over to me. I remember it clear as day, and he said to me, John, we know you suck. Thanks. Gift of encouragement. (laughs) Probably used other words I can't use from a pulpit. And said, just lie. The teacher isn't watching. I'll take your place, and we'll win. Now, I'm sitting here, right, as a 12-year-old, wanting to be liked, And realizing how awkward I continually am. And I looked at him and I remember thinking in my mind at that moment. Will I obey God or them? Will I break the Ten Commandments? And I looked at him and said, I can't lie. And I took the shot and of course I did not score. (laughs) It was probably like, anyway, another story. Um, And they were so angry at me. And look, I'm 40 and I still recall it. See, that's a small nothing example, but it's real. And Peter comes along and he says, you know what? I know it's scary when people mock you for being a Christian. I know it's scary that you used to be at the center of society and now you're not. I know it's really actually getting sort of scary when people call you different or outright attacking you for loving Jesus or disobeying his word. But don't fear their threats and don't be consumed by fear because you know who it wins in the end, right? Right? Oh, and you know that God is watching, right? And you know that 
God vindicates, right? What did Jesus say so bluntly in Matthew 10, 28? Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but not kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Peter says, what do you do when things get really bad? He says, here's what you do. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. You make the decision right now, in this moment, in this church service, you make the decision in your heart, the center of who you are, your mind, your will, your emotions, that you'll set your eyes on Christ, not just confessionally or intellectually. You will know him. You will revere him as Lord. That is, you will say that Jesus is God, and Jesus is sovereign, and Jesus is alive, and Jesus is love, and you will choose him even if it costs you and you have to suffer. You revere him more than your life. And you revere him more than your money. And you revere him more than your lifestyle. You revere him for the sake of the kingdom of God. And then he says, and it's a famous verse quoted in all sorts of conferences, so always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. But you do this, notice, with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ will be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good rather than doing it for evil. So he says, you be willing as a Christian, whether you're a mathematician or a philosopher or a theologian, you have a thousand facts or you have zero facts at all. He says, no matter who you are or the level of your intellect or your background, look, when you begin to suffer, you be prepared to stand up and say, yes, I confess Jesus. I'm aligned with Jesus. I fearlessly believe in the scriptures and the gospel and tell people why you're willing to suffer. But when you do it, listen closely, you're meek. You're respectful, you obey the law, you're not, you're not a jerk, you're not like an online troll that's destroying people, you're not prideful or brash or aggressive. See, actually what I find interesting is the loudest Christians who tend to be the most aggressive when I sit with them are actually wondering about their faith. If you're a person who's really loud but you're wondering, work out your doubt before you start yelling. Shh. Work out your faith. But for us who are just going to be honest, be kind and strong and humble and truthful, say, no, this is truth. Now, Peter is going to end this conversation in a very odd way. We actually arrive at this moment, you may not know this, in one of the most complicated passages in the whole New Testament. And I just, what a great thing that we get to go through this. Now, there's one thing I just want to say up front as we get going here. All scholars and pastors and theologians can agree on a few things out of this next few group of verses. Number one, Jesus is who he claims, God and fully human. He was righteous and perfect. And the whole reason why Peter is writing this is that we would know that Jesus is perfect and righteous. And though he was perfect and righteous, he suffered unjustly. But in the end, he won. And as he was vindicated, you're going to be vindicated too. So here's what Peter writes. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Holy Spirit. Now I just want to stop for a moment and unpack this. Whether you're a seeker here today and you're really wondering about our faith, you're a Christian long time, or just, you've just joined the faith, or you're a skeptic and your hands are crossed, you don't believe anything I'm saying. This is the summary of our living hope. Jesus suffered for our sins. Be reminded of this. In one act, in the crux of history, stands the cross of Christ where he deals with all the barriers between us and God and he brings us back to a holy God. He was there and in that place, he thought of you by name when darkness fell. 
When the whole unseen realm of evil started taunting and mocking Jesus, and when the Father turned his face, this is what Jesus was doing. He was saving us. And if when, when you embrace Jesus, everything that Jesus accomplished and all the metaphors in the New Testament to describe what Jesus was doing is applied to us. Remember, we learned this last year. We, in the law court image, we were declared guilty before a holy God. But through Jesus, we are justified, declared not guilty. In a world of finance and accounting, we are moved from a mortgage payment we can never pay back from the red to the black. In the world of economics, we were called slaves to sin who had no ability to save ourselves. And Jesus came came to the slave market and redeemed us back. When we faced God himself, we were declared covered by Jesus at the altar because he's our great high priest, he's our eternal mercy seat, he's our forever sacrifice, and he is our forever scapegoat that took the bullet we deserved. That is what Christ has done for us. He pardoned us, liberated us, filled the gap for us, stepped in for us, and he pays the ransom for us. So he has made us friends with God. He has brought us back to God. He died it says, and then he was brought back to the life by to life by the Holy Spirit, and that is what Peter declares. That is your living hope. Anyone want to say amen to that? Right, amen. And then he says the weirdest thing you're going to read probably in the New Testament, other than the Book of Revelation. After being made alive, Jesus went and made a proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What? So let me get this. I've grown up in church for a few days. Okay, what? So Jesus is dead. He does all that for me. He brings me back to God. He comes back physically alive to de- to, from death to life. But somewhere between him coming back to life and going to the Father, he goes where and talks to who and, and what's going on. Okay, so let me break this down. Number one, Peter is Jewish. There it is. Surprise, if you didn't know. Very Jewish. And he knew his Old Testament. And if you read out of Genesis chapter 6, there's a very bizarre little story called the sons of God. And not only this, that story, there's a book probably none of you have ever read called First Enoch. It's not in your Bible, okay? It's not there. Good looking. It's not there. First Enoch is a book that totally affected almost all the New Testament writers. It was written between in a different time. And here is what Peter is declaring He is saying this. See that phrase, spirits? It always means angels and demons in the Bible unless it absolutely refers to a human being. So here's what's being declared. Jesus, when he physically rose from the dead in the spirit realm, personally went to Satan and their whole horde to Lucifer himself and basically said to them, just so you know, You thought through my crucifixion you had won. You have lost. I have eternally defeated you. You are broken forever. And you'll never have the world back ever again. This is actually the summary of what we read in Colossians 2.15, where Paul says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. That's what he's referring to, triumphing them over them by the cross. It's when Jesus rose from that literally the enemy of our soul had to walk behind Christ and admit that Jesus had defeated them. So Peter says, just so you know, Since the suffering is getting really bad and it feels unbelievably dark and people are mocking you and attacking you and taking your job, just to remind you, look up at the cathedral, at the flags. Don't look at the fog because the one that is inspiring these people is ultimately defeated. 
And then Peter says, oh, and I'm not done with the Noah experience. He says, come back for a moment. Verse 20, in the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism, which now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says, see, the Noah story is the story you need to hear when you're suffering. Only a small group of people were saved, and the rest of the world mocked Noah and was against Noah and tried stopping Noah and was against him. But in the end, Noah and his family were saved and vindicated and the vast majority were not saved and they were judged. So the same with you as a Christian living in a hostile culture. You may be mocked but you will be saved. And by the way he says and how do you know that your salvation is secure? He said oh let me remind you of your baptism. What did you declare in good conscience? What did you pledge at your baptism? Did you not declare that Jesus is Savior and Lord? Did you not affirm Jesus' work in your life already? Did you not already affirm that you're no longer condemned and you believe in Jesus and his identity and his purpose and his work? Did you not say that I've been made clean already by the work of Christ? Have you not already declared that the resurrection is true and as you came to death and brought back to life, it is a symbol of what's going to happen to you? He says, oh, remember this. Your baptism is the living sign of vindication and hope. Go back to that moment again and again and remember who wins. And then Peter says, and oh, let me end where I must. He says, I just want to remind everyone, and remember who's on the throne in Rome at this moment, Nero. He says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. Jesus suffered And Jesus was righteous, and he submitted even to evil people. But now Jesus at this moment is vindicated, and Jesus is above all people, all leaders, and all spiritual forces, both good and bad. And he says, just so you know, you will be vindicated, because in the end you will sit with Jesus in the presence of God forever, and that is your living hope. Now this is a very interesting passage for us at this time in Canada. Because it actually begins the conversation that many of us, especially in a middle-class church, do not want to have, but we must. So number one, let me just say the word again, vindication. This passage in the whole Bible says that God will vindicate us in the end. And Jesus wins, and Jesus wins in the end. So here's the question. Will life be fair here? not on your life. Jesus, our example, entrusted himself, handed himself over, delivered himself, committed himself to God the Father who judges justly, and he lived his life with the understanding of the final day in clear view. Now, this is very significant. I've preached this before. Let me do it again. Every one of us sitting in this room, all of you watching online, wherever you might be, we as humans instinctually believe in justice. We believe that someone should never get away with hurting us when it was inappropriate. It is in the DNA. The greatest grieving that happens in the human family and soul is when there is injustice and there is no justice in the end. So I just want to declare this this morning. This is critical. No one gets away with anything in this life. No one. Because in the end, every human that has ever lived is going to face God. 
And God sees all and knows all and is the ultimate judge. And here's what the scripture says. Either the person who has deeply offended you or persecuted you or wounded you is going to become your brother and sister. And so Jesus takes what they've done against you, even horrific things, and places it on his body. And he takes the bullet for them. Or, at the end of time, they will face God themselves and have to give an account. Either Jesus takes the place or you face God yourself. But let me declare this. The essential worldview of Christianity and suffering is no injustice is left anywhere. It is all dealt with by Christ or by final judgment. That should be great hope to some of you who have been deeply hurt. But God declares that he's going to vindicate his people. Now why does this matter? Let me tell you why. Because we now live in a post-Christian nation. And we are no longer at the center of society. We are, by the week, being moved to the margins of society. And many of us in this church are actually wondering what in the world is going on because we're nice people and we're Canadian people and we pay our taxes and we're good and suddenly we're going, what in the world is going on? Let me tell you how close this is. You're a doctor or a nurse. You've spent years working on your stuff. And you love what you do and you love serving people and you took an oath to take care of life and suddenly you're in a situation and someone says, you must perform an abortion. You have no choice. At that moment, you have a decision. You're a teacher. And you love teaching and you love kids and suddenly you're told, you must teach this. And it totally violates your faith. What do you do? In, in, in any case, you're a university student. You're intellectual, you're bright, you're engaged. You're not a fundamentalist, you're not a reactionary. No, you actually, you're, you love this. But that you dare that you believe that there's a creator or there's intelligent design or there is something called absolute truth and the professor comes along and says, oh, we'll teach that out of you and pat you on the head. If you dare say that in our culture that gender is male and female, And this is how God has designed it. If you dare ever say that you believe that God has given humanity the beautiful gift of sexuality, but sexuality is defined by heaven and by God and by the scriptures, and there are limits to what you can and cannot do, immediately you are called a bigot, you are hateful. Actually, you're not only homophobic, you are now told that you do not believe in human rights. To a deeper group of audience, a deeper moment, there are some of you here today And this is not theory for you. This is you. This is your story. Where you're going, this sexuality thing is my battle. And I've wrestled with God and I've come to the conclusion, no matter how it's happened, this is who I am. And you have decided to do something that is so crazy and countercultural. You have decided to submit yourself to Christ and obey the scriptures no matter what you even want or desire or no matter what the culture says you can do. And you've decided to enter into the sufferings of Jesus and give up your own rights and life and sexuality and say no to yourself for the sake of Jesus Christ and your parents and your friends and even so-called Christian leaders are saying, you don't need to suffer, you can give in. But you've read the scriptures and you've decided to give up your life for the gospel. I say to you, Jesus sees your worship. He will vindicate you. See, this is how real this is going. You stand up in our culture and you say, there is one way to heaven. There is good in many religions, but there is only one name by which people are saved and his name is Jesus Christ. You are called hateful. You're a teenager at a party where everyone's starting to experiment with drugs or sleeping around or alcohol. You have the decision to make right there. 
You're the businesswoman doing very well in your career, and then suddenly what takes place? You are asked to lie or fudge the numbers or not pay taxes to help the corporation out. Right there, you have a decision. It's the Muslim or the Hindu or the atheist child that has to go back to their parents and begin to say to them, actually, no, I now believe Jesus is Lord, and I am leaving everything you've taught me for the sake of the gospel. Like, this isn't theory. This is it. And the question I want to ask this morning is this as I wrap up. And this is what I want us to wrestle through across our connect groups this week. Ready? Is the suffering worth it? Listen closely. As I read through 1 Peter and preach through it, I feel a growing deep tension between the now and not yet. So many of us have been in church for so long. Let me ask you a question who have been Christians for a long time. Do you really believe in eternal life? You say, yes, yes, we sing it, but no, 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 no. Do you really believe that there is a life yet to come, a new heavens and a new earth, and Jesus will vindicate you there? Let me ask you a different way. Is it worth your money or your job or your comfort or your time or your RSPs or your reputation? Do you really believe that God will bless you and affirm you and vindicate you in a life that is not yet to come? The answer will determine the level of suffering you're willing to participate in or not. Peter says, all of us are called into suffering for Christ. And when we suffer, we are supposed to be the most meek, submissive, humble, yet thoughtful, yet engaged people. We are never supposed to be accused of being arrogant, etc., etc. None of that holds. But the question we have to really wrestle with is, am I willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Am I willing to say that the scripture has the final authority on faith and life and practice? And if it costs me my comfort, I will do it willingly for the sake of Jesus Christ. This is not something we can just respond to in a moment. Like this, this is the question the church in Canada now needs to ask. And by the way, I am not a defeatist. God is sovereign. Churches are popping up all across Canada. Churches are being revived. More and more people are becoming Christians. I have no... God is sovereign. He's going to do his thing. But in the middle, are you willing? I end where Peter ends. Where he declared that Jesus unjustly suffered. And he died. And he was made alive. And this is what he ends. He says that Jesus has gone into heaven. He is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers and submission to him. Or as Paul wrote in Philippians 2.9, Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place, has given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a Savior we have. What a Lord we have. What an example we have. What a living hope we have. So I remind you, as you wrestle through this, and I also do, Jesus has overcome. God is watching. God is empowering us. God will give us courage to stand. God will give us the humility of Christ when we do. God will make all things right. And suffering is worth it because we want the world to see Jesus more than our luxury and our comfort. 
Would you stand and prepare to respond with me this way? Lord, not even easily preached, even more difficult to work out in our lives, but would you begin to unpack what this means for us? Lord, for some of us who have not been suffering and we've chosen comfort, forgive us and give us holy joy and courage. For others of us, make us like Christ. So when we stand, we're humble and kind and not a jerk or arrogant. But overall, Lord, give us a vision on top of that cathedral where it is clear who wins and begin to dispel fog across not this church, but the whole church across our country that we love. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our example. Amen. 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 Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.